So good evening everyone. This is Doug Taylor. Welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. Uh, we are going to go just a little bit back tonight. I'd like to revisit a couple of verses that we did uh, a few weeks ago. Proverbs 11, chapter, chapter 11, verses 1, 2, and 3. And the reason I want to do that is that Rabbi Moskowitz uh, today on his class introduced uh, some new ideas with regard to those that uh, I thought would be very helpful for you uh, and certainly tie in with the material that we've been covering. Uh, so we're going to go back to those and then uh, if we have time we'll get back uh, on our regular chronological schedule here beginning with uh, Proverbs 11 chapter 9. Sorry, Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 11. So Looking at chapter 11, verse 1, the verse reads, Deceitful scales are an abomination to Hashem, but of perfect weight is his desire. Deceitful scales are an abomination to Hashem, but of perfect weight is his desire. And we have uh, talked through this verse uh, not too long ago. Rabbi Moskowitz wants to say that the word abomination is always used where the consequence is not immediate. You don't see it right away. Uh, I mean, there are some things where you, 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 you see very clearly. If you walk in front of a you know, uh, Mack truck going 50 miles an hour down the highway, the consequence is pretty clear as to what's probably going to happen to you. But there are things where there's an intermediate step between the action and the end result. Now, perfect weight uh, is his desire. That, that phrase, a perfect weight is his desire, uh, Rabbi Moskowitz is suggesting means that I'm very precise in my justice. A, a direct literal reading, we'd be talking about weights used in the marketplace when you're uh, balancing back and forth uh, between, uh, let, let's say you walk into the marketplace and you're going to buy a pound of potatoes and so the storekeeper would have a one pound weight, they put on a scale and then they put potatoes on the other side until the scale's in balance uh, and so forth from there. And uh, the way that a person could cheat would be to shave off a very tiny amount off the bottom of their one pound, two pound, three pound, five pound weights uh, so that people get just a little teeny bit less than a pound of whatever it is they're buying. And over time, that adds up, and a wicked person would think, well, over time I'm managing to, you know, sneak away a little extra money. But Rabbi Moskowitz is pointing out that the verse is also indicating that we need to be very precise uh, in the way we apply justice. We can't be just a little bit off. Uh, we, we need to be perfect. And that that gets down to our ability to think through an idea and analyze an idea. So he's suggesting that the verse is saying that you have to be very precise in the way that you think about something. Uh, that you have to train your mind to be precise. And that you can't just sort of be, well, it's sort of this and it's sort of that, and I guess that idea makes sense over there and so forth. Because sometimes it, there's a tendency, I think, for us to pick up on an idea or hear an idea and not be rigorously analytical about it. But, well, it sounds pretty good, or, you know, I kind of thought that was the general idea or something like that. And we don't get precise in it and really ask, well, is that really true? And go through every step in the analysis process without skipping these steps to make sure that we've got it right. So that's that's verse 1. He's, he's suggesting that there's a message there for us to be very precise in our thinking and to train our minds to be precise. Okay, let me pause there see if there are any questions. And Pamela, you've asked, is there an element of idolatry here? Um, I don't see necessarily uh, how idolatry would, would fit in directly. Um, I think it's more just about being very uh, precise in thinking in the same way that we need to be precise in our measurements. 
around uh, very practical, you know, uh, everyday kinds of things. Uh, as an example, if I tell someone, you know, I'll meet you at the train station at three o'clock, I mean that means three o'clock. Um, three o five is not the same as three o'clock, and some people will make a statement like that and their ideas well that means I'll meet you somewhere in the neighborhood of 245 to 315 or something like that. Uh, I, I think this is getting to the idea of, of being very precise in that. If you think about a train schedule, when they say, uh, you know, like at Penn Station in New York, the train's going to pull out at 510, uh, assuming they haven't run into any difficulty, generally speaking, to my understanding, that train will pull out at 510. And if you show up at 512, uh, you've missed it. Um, so, and very much so, uh, Pamela, with regard to money, uh, and, and that gets to the, uh, you know, the perfect weight issue. Uh, it, it, we need to be very precise about that, not just sort of, you know, wishy-washy. If you think about going to uh, work for an individual, either on contract or to just do a one-time job or as an employee, uh, and you ask, well, how much are you offering to pay me? And they say, well, you know, somewhere between about um, $100 and $200 a day. Like, well, which is it? <laughs> 100 or 200 Or is it one twenty-seven ninety-five? You know, exactly what what's being said there. So, no problem, Naomi. Glad to have you with us. Um, so that's, uh, that's, Verse one, and Naomi, Naomi, we're uh, we're going back just a little bit to cover a couple of ideas at the beginning of the eleventh chapter. We're going to look at verses one, two, and three, uh, and verse one uh, is seems to be giving us an idea that we need to be precise uh, in our thoughts. Now, verse two in chapter eleven says, "With a willful sinner comes shame, but with modest ones comes wisdom." With a willful sinner comes shame, but with modest ones comes wisdom. Now, a willful sinner, following on from the last verse, is a person who is willing to do a sin, but in a hidden way. He thinks that he'll get away with it, but eventually he will get caught, and he eventually will get shame. Okay. Now, modest... I mean, halakhically, the, the rules of modesty that apply to Jews have to do with, you know, certain uh, acts or, or wearing of certain clothes or that kind of thing. But in a philosophical arena, which is where we are here in the book of Mishlech, modesty means that I'm a very private person. Now, the verse says, modest ones, with modest ones comes wisdom. So... How does being a private person bring wisdom? So Rabbi Moskowitz wants to say, uh, and again, Naomi, we are in chapter 11 looking at verse 2 of Proverbs. Um, Rabbi Moskowitz wants to say that anything that you do without thought must come from your personality. It, would, it must come from... from uh, that somewhere because if you're not thinking it through it has to come from some other place now a private person tries to cover up these things I mean modesty is about covering if you think it through that way and so unlike a person who just blurts everything out the modest person doesn't really have an outlet for dealing with those kinds of things so so when there's no outlet then a person is forced to have to deal with their emotions. You have to deal with that stuff. And so the modesty brings wisdom because by the sheer nature of the fact that the modest person is, you know, covering up the things that other people might just blurt out, uh, it's going to force them, because that stuff's going to come up for them, to deal with their emotions, and by going through that process, that helps to make them wise. So, with the modest one comes wisdom by virtue of the fact that they are uh, 
through their, their behavior, forcing themselves to deal with their own emotions, and that process will bring wisdom for them. Okay, any questions on that? Okay, so verse 3 then says at the beginning, um, the innocence of the just will guide them. And then it says the corruption of the faithless will despoil them. Now, Rabbi Moskowitz explains some words that come up uh, in the Hebrew uh, in Mishlei. And there's two different kinds of people we want to talk about here. One is called a Tom, and the other is called a Yosher. A Tom is a person who removes his negative traits. So he actively uh, gets in and works on and removes those negative parts of his personality. A Yosher is a person who loves truth, and he's developed a certain level of honesty, and he's very attached to learning and thinking. Okay? So, he loves truth, uh, loves learning, loves thinking. Alright? The Tom is a person who removes his negative traits. So, the very first verse, first verse of the chapter, chapter 1, is saying that by... Uh, being precise, we're obviously involved in the world of ideas, in the world of thinking, and we're developing a certain level of honesty. So we will get the traits of a Yosher, that trait of being involved in learning and thinking and of being honest. The second verse helps us to deal with our emotions, because by being modest, we're forcing ourselves to deal with the emotions that come up for us, and so that'll help us to, to grow in that area. And the third verse, the first part here is talking about the person who has is uh, undone his negative traits and is a Yosher. So in, in a sense you could think of it like this. There are two types of people. One person undoes his negative traits, and one who develops positive traits through thought. And both of those, we want to have both of those parts in our, in our personality. We want to be working on both those. So the, this verse, verse 3, is saying that if I'm a Yosher and a Tom, that is, I'm uh, honest and I'm involved in the world of thought and... I'm working on undoing my negative traits, then that will make things smooth because nothing will be pulling me away from my straightness or being on a straight path. But if I'm a Yosher, that is, I'm honest and I'm interested in thought and I love truth, but I'm not a Tom, that is, I'm not actively undoing my negative traits, then those negative traits are going to sneak back, essentially, and cause me difficulties. I'll end up being uh, corrupted and uh, make mistakes. So it's very important that we have both. We want to be honest, we want to be involved in the world of thought and learning, but we also need to be actively uncovering and dealing with uh, our negative traits so that those things don't um, essentially sneak out and uh, in a covert way, cause us to make mistakes uh, and have difficulties in life. Okay, any questions on those comments? Okay, good. I thought those were really interesting and important ideas, uh, particularly in the context of the fact that we've just done those verses recently and are um, involved in chapter 11. So let's move on with uh, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 9. And it says, The mouth of a flatterer will destroy his friend, and with the knowledge of the righteous person he will be saved. The mouth of a flatterer will destroy his friend, 
and with the knowledge of the righteous person, he will be saved. So, what are the questions? What questions might we ask about this verse to set the stage for understanding it, and trying to get to what King Solomon is trying to relate to us? The mouth of a flatterer will destroy his friend, and with the knowledge of the righteous person, he will be saved. Again, the first step is not to try to jump to answers, but the first step is to ask questions about the verse. Anything that isn't entirely clear, is unclear, is undefined, doesn't make sense, seems odd, anything along that line, we want to raise a question. So what questions might we ask about this verse? Any ideas? So let me suggest a couple. First of all, what's flattery? I mean, we know the word and we use the word, but sometimes we can have, you know, this gets back to what we just discussed in verse 1, the need to be precise. Sometimes even though we think we know what a word means, it's really helpful to try to define it, because sometimes in the process of doing that, we'll discover that perhaps we're not so clear about what the definition of that word actually is. So, let's ask the question, what's flattery? Um, another question, how does the mouth of a flatterer destroy his friend? I mean, how does that actually work? Do we see that happen in the real world, in the practical everyday world in which we live? Do we see that that phenomenon exist? How does the mouth of a flatterer destroy his friend? Another question. How is he saved with the knowledge of the righteous person? I mean, it says, with the knowledge of the righteous person, he will be saved. Well, what's he saved from? And that ties back to how does the mouth of a flatterer destroy his friend? He's probably saved from being destroyed, but how does that work? And what knowledge are we talking about here? Well, it says the knowledge of the righteous person. Uh, what kind of knowledge is, is important? And Pamela, you wrote toady, and I'm not quite sure what that means. You're going to have to help me. I think you may have share that before and forgive my memory if I'm falling short here. Servility. Okay, uh, you're answering the, or are you coming up with an answer to the fourth question? What knowledge are we talking about? Oh, okay, I see. You're defining flattery. Okay, thank you. Okay, servility. All right, any other thoughts about what flattery means? Okay. Well, uh, again, my, the, the learning that I want to share with you comes to me through Rabbi Moskowitz, uh, or from Rabbi Moskowitz, um, and in this case, he was working with the commentary uh, and interpretation of the Rabbeinu Yonah. <clears throat> and the Rabbeinu Yonah defines flattery as saying something about someone that is not really there. In other words, something that's false. And I assume that he's referring here to something complimentary uh, that's intended to make the person uh, you know, feel good. Uh, so something that's that's false. Now, what happens to a person when someone flatters them? What happens to the one being flattered? Someone comes up and tells somebody that they are the greatest person on the planet and that they're, you know, tremendous and wonderful and all kinds of things that that aren't true, but are designed to make the person feel good, what happens to that person? Any ideas? 
Well, Rabbi Moskowitz wanted to suggest that the person is potentially going to become haughty. Um, you know, if people are constantly telling them how great they are, then there's a danger they might start thinking that. Uh, and, uh, you know, gee, I guess I'm, I'm really terrific, you know. I, I guess I can do all these super cool things. Um, and that can unfortunately destroy that person's soul because, all, it's my understanding, all haughty people are an abomination to God. And Pamela, you asked or raised a good question. Yet, if the person is really aware that what's happening is flattery, they may wonder, okay, what's this guy want? <laughs> Why is he buttering me up? You know. But if he's not aware that it's flattery, if it's done very subtly and very cleverly, uh, then the person may start to believe that and may become uh, arrogant and haughty. Now, the righteous person is going to be saved from this because he won't be pulled in by the flattery. He will look at it and recognize, hmm, that sounds about as, you know, sincere as nothing. What's, what's up with that? He'll realize it's not true and he won't become haughty. And by not becoming haughty, he will save his soul. So in this case, Rabbeinu Yonah seems to be saying that the, the flattery is going to destroy the, person, the friend because they might believe it and become haughty. The righteous person will recognize that ah, this is flattery and through that knowledge, he'll be saved from become, becoming haughty and that will thereby save his soul. Okay. And Naomi, you are correct. People are misled by the flattery. Uh, and that's what's going on in the first verse, because the friend, or first half of the verse, because the friend is being misled by the flattery and can start to have a completely false opinion of himself and think he's really hot stuff, and uh, that can be his undoing. Now, the sages also say that. Um, that you should be a tzaddik, a righteous person, and don't be a rasha, a wicked person. But even if the whole world says that you're a tzaddik, you should be in your own eyes like a rasha. In other words, even if the whole world's telling you, hey, you're a tremendously righteous guy, you should be in your own eyes like a wicked person. Okay, and we'll... Uh, uh, can cover that a little more here as we go. It's also possible to explain uh, the verse that through the wisdom of the tzaddik, the wisdom of the righteous person, the friends of the righteous person will be saved because the righteous person will guide them. And that's the opposite of flattery. The righteous person will give them correct ideas, not false ones. He'll show them how they should be guided and uh, help them steer them in the in the direction of proper actions. Okay, so let's talk about uh, the analysis process here just for a moment. Someone could suggest that maybe there are two parts of flattery. There's the type that's false, and then there's flattery that's true. The Rabbeinu Yonah says clearly that flattery destroys a friend with his mouth because he praises him with a greatness that is not found in him. Okay, so it's beyond what is real. So he's, he's essentially saying that that idea, well, there might be flattery that's true, it isn't the case. Um, and the idea that, well, maybe there's true flattery and maybe there's false flattery, that suggestion involves making a subdivision of the word flattery into two parts. Now, we do subdivisions sometimes when we are analyzing verses in Proverbs. We sometimes will run up against something, uh, and, and it will cause us to do that. But whenever we, we make a subdivision, we have to have a reason to make a subdivision. Otherwise, we ought to take the verse as it is. And you can always make lots of subdivisions, but if you're going to subdivide something into multiple parts, then you need a proof for why you're doing that. Otherwise, 
uh, you should stay with the universals and just what's written. Uh, one of the reasons that we sometimes subdivide is where we see a conflict. And we say, well, that doesn't always, whatever that thing is, that doesn't always happen in the real world. Well, if that's true, then the verse must be referring to one particular type of that thing or something like that. So we'll subdivide that idea into several different parts and see, okay, where do we see one of those parts being true uh, in the real world? But if we don't see a conflict, then there's no reason to subdivide, and in this case, we don't see one. Okay, and Pamela, you've made a good point. Uh, if it was true, it wouldn't be flattery. Uh, and, and I would agree. I mean, someone had raised the question uh, that, you know, there could be truthful flattery, uh, but I, I agree with you and I, uh, with the Rabbeinion as well. Uh, I think we're talking about when someone is saying, praising someone with a greatness that isn't found in him. And you're right, the term flattery does have a negative meaning. Okay, um, now... <laughs> The Rebbeinu Yonah quoted the sages as saying that even if the whole world says that you're a righteous person, you should think of yourself as a wicked person. And even if the whole world says you're a tzaddik, you should think of yourself as a Russia. He's not saying that you should lie to yourself and say to yourself, well, I'm a wicked person. What he means is that there are traits that can harm you, and you should never stop looking at yourself to identify these and to deal with them. You cannot ever stop doing that. You constantly have to deal with those incorrect traits. As soon as, as, soon as somebody says, well, I've got it all done, I'm finished, uh, that's, that's a very dangerous thing. Uh, so he, he's saying you should constantly be on the lookout and constantly vigilant about um, negative traits and incorrect traits and keep constantly working on correcting those. You shouldn't allow flattery or even a true statement about yourself to keep you from recognizing that you have faults and you have to be constantly working on those faults. So that's what, what, uh, what that means. Now, a compliment is the truth and flattery is a lie. So that's, that's the Rebbeinu Yom's approach on this. Uh, and, and consistent with what we just discussed. Now, uh, again, according to the Rabbeinu Yonah, then there are two kinds of praise. There's false praise, and we call that flattery, and there's true praise, and we call that a compliment. What the verse is telling us is that there are two ways of receiving flattery. One is just accepting it, and that's what's going on in the first half of the verse. Uh, where the flatterer will destroy his friend because his friend is just accepting it. Okay, the other way is to analyze that flattery to see if it's really true. Uh, and according to the Rabbeinu Yonah, you can't know whether it's a compliment or flattery until you do the analysis, until you actually look at it. Okay, and uh, Pamela, you're right. Uh, Something could fool you, a flattery could fool you into thinking you had arrived when you have not. Uh, and that gets into that area of haughtiness and being blinded to your own negative traits, which is a terrible place to end up. Uh, because then you can't see uh, the things that are causing you to uh, uh, make mistakes. Uh, the most dangerous assumptions are the ones that we don't realize we're making. Uh, and sometimes if we think we're, we've totally conquered an area of our lives, we need to look hard again and make sure uh, because we can fool ourselves and we're real good at doing that. So if someone praises you, then you have to do an analysis and determine is it a compliment or is it flattery? And if it's flattery, then you need to recognize that and reject it. Uh, and if it's a compliment, that is, it's really true praise, then you can accept that, but you shouldn't allow it to make you haughty. So the subject along that interpretation of the verse would be receiving praise. Because in the first half, the praise is just, the flattery is just accepted. In the second half, the righteous person analyzes it, figures out that it's not correct, and then rejects it.
Now, the Rabbeinu Yonah has a second interpretation. In that interpretation, the first half of the verse talks about how the person gives you flattery and destroys you. And in the second half of the verse, the righteous person comes along and tells you the truth. He tells you your bad traits so that you can get yourself in line with reality. And through that, he'll also teach you not to fall for flattery. So this has some interesting carryovers into, you know, practical everyday life. There are certain theories in education that you should praise a child in order to drive him to, uh, you know, certain achievements. And apparently they've found that this produces big problems. Because what happens is you can end up giving the child a sense of himself that is beyond what he really is. In other words, he gets an inflated idea of himself and he can't live up to it. So he ends up being in terrible conflict because he feels like he should be at a certain level and yet he sees in reality that he's not there. And that conflict can be hugely destructive to him. So that's something that we, we have to keep an eye out for. When the verse talks about a flatterer, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's doing the flattery for his benefit. I mean, he might think that he's doing it for your benefit, just like, you know, certain educators or teachers or even parents might praise their children when it's really not justified, thinking that it is actually a benefit to the child. Uh, so the flatterer in the first half of the verse could be doing it because they truly think it's a benefit to their friend. Uh, I mean, it doesn't say that, um, you know, that they're necessarily doing it with some kind of malintent. Uh, so the verse isn't talking about the motives of the flatterer uh, because the flatterer might be doing it to fake you out or it could be to get something out of you or because he wants you to think highly of him or it might be that he has a motive to help you and he has a wrong view of how to do that and so he somehow thinks that giving you this praise even though it's not justified is a help to you. Uh, it could be lots of motivations behind the flatterer. It doesn't really matter what the motive is, the result is still the same thing. No matter what their motivation is, you still have to look at the, the praise when it comes in and analyze it and say, hmm, is this really appropriate or is this not appropriate? Uh, and then act accordingly. Okay? Any questions on this verse? Okay, in that case, let's move on. This is Proverbs chapter 11 and verse 10. And it reads like this. In the well-being of the righteous, the city is happy. And with the destruction of the wicked, there is song. In the well-being of the righteous, the city is happy. And with the destruction of the wicked, there is song. So, what kind of questions might we, might that verse raise to us? In the well-being of the righteous, the city is happy. And with the destruction of the wicked, there is song. Thoughts about questions? Questions, questions, questions. Okay, Naomi, good, thank you. How the city can be happy, and who will sing the glad song? Yeah. So you've got a whole city, so here's a righteous person that's, you know, having things go well for him. So how is the city going to be happy about that? What's, what's the connection there? And who's going to sing the song? with the destruction of the, of the wicked. Who sings on that? Okay, good. Other questions? Okay, uh, 
and Pamela, you mentioned maybe disorder comes with sedition or whatever. Uh, that can be true. So we could be talking about uh, the destruction of the wicked, uh, maybe with regard to some type of uh, disorder that they have uh, fostered within the city. Uh, and Naomi, you've asked, uh, good, who is wicked in the city? Yeah, who are the wicked people? Okay, so Rabbeinu Yonah has two commentaries uh, on this verse, and we're going to touch on them both. Um, because the tzaddik, the righteous person, now a righteous person in Hebrew is called a tzaddik, uh, because the tzaddik does good, Everything he does is good for the city and not bad. Okay. Uh, a second explanation is that everybody is obligated to be happy when the tzaddik has his well-being. So when it's good for the tzaddik, they should be happy. Uh, and they should be happy with the destruction of the wicked. Now, interestingly, when it says you should not hate your brother in your heart, so if that's true, how could there be song with the destruction of the wicked? Rabbeinu Yuna says that the wicked is not in the category of your brother. So the wicked is a, a separate, separate category. And when that verse is talking about um, you should not hate your brother in your heart, that category of brother does not include a wicked person. So the difference between these two explanations is that in the first explanation with the well-being of the righteous and the destruction of the wicked you're happy in the second explanation you're obligated to be happy that's why he asks the question on the second explanation about not hating your brother in your heart and the answer given is that a wicked person is not your brother so in the first one it seems that that the happiness is an outcome, but in the second explanation, uh, he's suggesting you have an obligation to be happy when things go well with the righteous uh, or the wicked are destroyed. So that raises some questions uh, to us. First of all, what's the real difference between these two interpretations? So that's one question. Another question is, the sages said, uh, when they were referring to the Egyptians, that when they were destroyed, there was a certain sort of limitation that uh, people shouldn't be happy because God's creation is being destroyed. So how does that apply in this case? Because we're saying with the destruction of the wicked, there is song. But, the, you know, the wicked are created by God too, so how do I reconcile that? And another question would be, well, there are lots of times when people are happy when a wicked person is destroyed, so why would King Solomon think that he needs to tell us that we're obligated to feel that way? I mean, it's pretty obvious when a really wicked person is destroyed, and everybody agrees that they're wicked, that, you know, there's a lot of happy people. And so why would King Solomon tell us that? Seems pretty obvious. And then we could ask one more question. And that is, how can you obligate someone to be happy? I mean, a person is either happy or they're not. You can obligate someone in an action, like you know, go to the store, or wash the car, or, um, uh, you know, uh, dig out the ditch. I mean, that's an action. We can obligate somebody to do that. But how do you obligate someone to feel a certain way? I mean, that seems impossible to do. Okay. So what I want to start with is to look at the difference between the first interpretation and the second interpretation. And Pamela, yeah, you made a, uh, a good point about Miriam did sing on the shore uh, when, the, uh, when the Egyptians were destroyed. Um, okay, and uh, you mentioned uh, he sees those disorders in people's thinking. Uh, 
PC, PC, PC. Uh, can you remind me? I, I live in my work world in a world of acronyms, and I get uh, get lost with them after a while. Ah, political correctness, thank you. Okay, yep. Definitely can sow disorder in people's thinking. So, let's take a look at these two interpretations. In the first interpretation, seems to be a very practical thing. People are happy with the destruction of the wicked. I mean, the wicked hurt people, they harm people, even their own people sometimes turn against them. So it's a very practical thing. Wicked person is destroyed, people are happy, they sing. Um, so it's pretty easy to see the practicality of that, and that naturally a person would be happy with that result, that the wicked people get destroyed. So if that's the case, then, you know, what's the verse teaching us? I mean, the purpose of Mishlei is not just to tell us about certain phenomenon that exist, but it's supposed to teach us about how to live. So... How's this teaching me about how to live? I mean, what advice is King Solomon trying to give us here? And a second additional question is that practically, if they saw a righteous person fail, there are a lot of people who would be happy about that. I mean, it wouldn't bother them if a righteous person failed or if a wicked person succeeded. You know, a lot of them would probably be happy regardless. Practically, we don't seem to see that the facts are true, that people are happy when the righteous are successful and when the wicked fail. And in fact, many times it seems like it's not that way. So that result doesn't always seem to come about. But because the righteous do good to all and do no harm, then people should be happy, but that isn't always true. So again, what's King Solomon telling us? So, <clears throat> objectively, what does a righteous person do? He helps the community. Objectively, what's a wicked person do? They destroy the community. And through the study of the book of Proverbs, we get to see the details of how this happens. And we talk about this in many, many verses, in many different cases, how the righteous person helps and how the wicked person destroys. So you have to be a person who recognizes when you are being benefited. There are people who simply don't recognize when they're being benefited and when they're being harmed. I mean, if their friend offers them heroin, you know, a person could say, gee, you know, look how generous my friend is being to me. He's giving me this free heroin, you know. And if that's true, then that person has an incorrect view and will think that person is their friend, but that person giving them the heroin is really wicked, and he's destroying them. So what we're saying is that we have to be people who recognize when someone is benefiting us and when someone is harming us. And if we don't recognize this, then the verse is telling us, hey, straighten out your view here, and recognize when the righteous person is helping you and when the wicked person is harming you. You know, you've got to be able to recognize this, what benefits you and what harms you in life. Now, that is a certain level of development when you start to recognize the difference. You have to really know who your friends are and who your friends aren't. If a righteous person criticizes you, you have to recognize this is a benefit to you. In other words, you have to see what's good for you and what isn't, even if it is initially unpleasant. So if you aren't happy when a tzaddik is successful or when a wicked person fails, then the verse is telling you that you don't have a correct value system. And if a righteous, person's come, righteous person comes over to you and says, look, you know, you're doing the wrong thing. Straighten yourself out. Think about, okay, how do I feel at that moment? If I get angry and defensive, then what that shows is that I have an incorrect value system. And I need to get in and analyze that and get myself straightened out on that point. Okay? So if that's true 
then what's the difference between the first half and the second half? Because the first half is an obligation on a particular level to be happy uh, with the well-being of the righteous, and the second half seems to be an obligation to be happy with the destruction of the wicked. So, what's the difference? So, an obligation in the book of Proverbs is to be on a certain level, and you must make a plan to get there through study and through the development of yourself. You can't force this. This is very important. You cannot force this. It's a result of the ideas becoming clear through review over and over, not memorization, like not just wrote by memory, but by reviewing, going over the ideas step by step and not skipping any steps so that it's like you're learning it again for the first time or at least you're covering every step to make sure that you haven't missed any. And after a while, that review of those ideas begins to affect you and you start operating in a certain way. So what obligates you is when you see the value system of Proverbs, then logic demands that you be a certain person, and that logic shows you that being that kind of a person is beneficial. In other words, living the life of Mishlei makes sense. Um, so you begin to see the value of being such a person, and then as a result of, of, that, of seeing that clearly, you start to take it upon yourself to do that. You take upon yourself the responsibility to live that kind of life. It's not an obligation like halacha, like Jewish, like Torah law. Um, you have to do Torah law regardless of whether you like it or understand it or whatever. The law is the law. You have to do that regardless. But in, in Musr, in character development, in, in the Proverbs way of life, you can't do this blindly. You have to clearly see what the benefit is to you. And when you see that benefit, then you take it upon yourself to reach that level. But you have to see the benefit of working on it. If you don't see the benefit of it, then that's not the Proverbs approach. So again, you cannot force yourself to be on a level that you're not. Um, if you look up and see a great tzaddik, a great righteous person, and you begin to imitate uh, them, and because you think that's what you're supposed to do, that is not the process that Proverbs is talking about. The process Proverbs would be talking about is to understand why does that righteous person do things the way they do and go over and over those ideas until they become so clear to you that you start acting that way, not because you're forcing yourself to do it, but because it's a natural outcome of being involved uh, in that learning. It's a natural result of your knowledge. It changes your personality. So your mind sees clearly why I should do that, how I should do it, and that there, importantly, that there's no other better way of living. Okay? All right. And Pamela, you wrote, uh, Jerusalem was happy when 185,000 Assyrians died. Uh, and if, you know, if they're wicked people, then yeah, that this verse is exactly talking about that. Um, now, there are, in the, in the development of, of Musr, or character development, uh, character development is probably a, uh, not an entirely precise definition of uh, Musr, um, but it, it gets to that. Uh, in the development of Musr, there are two levels. And one level is where I'm totally selfish. Now, importantly, there are two types of selfishness. See, we tend to think of selfishness as a bad thing. Not always the case. See, one level, one type of selfishness is where I do something because I want to do it, but it's harmful to me. Okay? And that's not good. But a second type is where I do something because I want to do it because I see it's a real benefit to me. The first type is a foolish type of selfishness, and the second type is a wise type, an intelligent type of selfishness. I mean, that's, that's the way we learned the, the first part of the verse, where I'm operating 
on a selfishly wise level. Okay, so we, we for example, I might decide to, uh, you know, start exercising because I realize it will be good for my health. Well, that's a selfish thing to do, to take time to exercise. But it's a wise, selfish thing to do. I'm doing it for my benefit. I want to feel better. There's nothing wrong with that. So selfishness is not always a bad thing. Um, now, there is a certain level where you begin to relate to the systems of the world objectively. You realize that this world works with systems. And the scientist who works in those systems uses the particulars only to understand the universal, the universal idea. The only importance of a particular uh, to them would be to understand a universal. And he relates to the universals and the ideas themselves, not because of selfishness, but because he recognizes that's the reality. So when you work in this, in this field of Proverbs, and you study and learn and get involved in this, you begin to relate to the universal ideas to the point where those universals become the important thing to you. So in the second half of the verse, the verse is saying you should be happy with because the tzaddik works with a system and tries to organize the city based on justice while the wicked only does wicked things. So for the personality that's drawn to the universal ideas, he's drawn to that tzaddik because of the way that tzaddik operates. And you're happy when he's successful because he relates to the system, the system of universals. Now, when we talk about systems, a city represents a system. So that suggests why King Solomon used the term city in this verse. In the well-being of the righteous, the city is happy. Because he's talking about a system. So why does he use responsibility in the second half uh, and, and not the first half? In other words, the concept of, uh, of responsibility? It, again, there are two, two interpretations and two, I guess, type of people who are relating to this verse. The first person is selfish, but the basic selfishness is still there. In the second, the responsibility is where your whole personality changes. There's no more selfishness. So we've got two different kinds of people here. One, where I'm operating on the basis of yeah, I'm selfish. I see that the righteous do good things for the city, and I like good things being done for the city, so I'm happy when the righteous uh, are doing well, and uh, I like it when people who hurt the city uh, you know, aren't, aren't successful, and so I'm happy with the destruction of the wicked. Okay? So there's a, a basic selfishness there. But in the second part, if I've moved to uh, that higher level to where I'm relating to the universals, then there's no more selfishness. I'm just relating to the systems, and I'm making decisions on the basis of those systems. And what's motivating me is my relationship to the system itself. I understand that somebody one time asked Einstein what he thought about his own death about his, his dying. And his response was that it, apparently that it wasn't even worth thinking about. His own death wasn't worth thinking about. See, Einstein studied the universe, and after a while his personality changed, and then he generally, as I understand it, only related to universals. So his personal life wasn't important. I mean, he might discuss the idea of a soul, or something like that as an idea, but the idea of his personal death didn't make a difference to him because he was relating to the universals. When we start with the study of Proverbs and Musser and we start relating to justice and kindness, we discuss it in the context of the benefit to us. 
But justice and kindness are also concepts on which a society should operate. It's a system. Now, a person has to live on the basis of what motivates him. So when you first start out, you're selfish. And Proverbs shows you how to live as an intelligent person and have a good life, and that's a selfish thing. It's not bad selfish. I mean, we could call it enlightened selfish. If you live selfishly the other way, against the ideas of Mishlei, well, then you'll only destroy yourself. And that's not a particularly good way to go. So it is worth your while to investigate and analyze these ideas until you get the right view. So when you start out in Proverbs, you're going totally against your nature. I mean, your selfishness will ask, why should I bother to do that? But logic will show you that it's the most beneficial to live the life of Proverbs, the life of Musa, even though your emotions go the other way. So a rational selfishness will tell you to go against your personality and live according to the world of Proverbs, the world of Musa. Now, as you study for selfish reasons, you start studying universals, the concepts. And we talk about them in this class. And you use those concepts to further your selfish life. Not bad selfish, remember, just the fact that you're focused on you. But after a while, as you study this again and again and go over and over these ideas, you relate to the universals themselves and you start to become attached to them. And those universals become your essence and your desire. Okay, so, uh, and, uh, you know, the question could be asked, well, what's the idea of a universal uh, in the book of Mishlei? And Rabbi Moskowitz commented that the most universal idea of Mishlei, of Proverbs, is who is wise? He who sees the consequences of his actions. The Sajigan gives an introduction to Proverbs and says that the purpose of Proverbs is to evaluate your immediate pleasures and pains versus your future pleasures and pains. I mean, every human being is drawn to pleasure and wants to avoid pain. When you start out, you go through the immediate pleasure and you avoid the immediate pain. But when you analyze the idea, you start to see the concepts and ideas as to why you should live a more rational life. And every verse shows us a different particular that is an example of the universals. So the two levels, as I understand it, that Rabbeinu Yonah is talking about here, uh, about relating to the success of the tzaddik and to the failure of the wicked are, number one, if I have a correct view and I'm intelligently selfish, I'm happy to see the success of the righteous and the demise of the wicked for selfish personal reasons, because I, you know, that's, I see that as a benefit to me. The second way to relate to it is to relate to the universals, because then I relate to the righteous person, the tzaddik, based on my identification with those universal ideas, and I'm not involved in the sort of a selfish and self-centered way of looking at it. The difference between these two centers around a difference in my personality. Okay, in one case, I see the benefit of exotic actions. In the other case, I'm relating to him based on the universals. Okay, let me stop here and look at uh, uh, comments. Pamela, you've asked what happens when government works against the governed, as in many countries. Um, then I think we see uh, consequences that happen from that, because virtually any case in history, I think, that we can look back at, and sometimes it takes a while, but virtually any case in history when the governed is not operating for the benefit of, sorry, when the government is not operating for the benefit of the governed and is working against the governed, the governed eventually rebel. And that government is eventually replaced or overthrown or changed somehow. Um, because the people will not, at least historically, will not stand for that forever. And Naomi, you commented, when religious freedom is there, uh, then the people sing for the city and the ruler. Uh, that is also true. Yeah. Um, 
or certainly can be. Uh, and in fact, it's been it was commented that if the uh, if the Romans, for example, really understood the value of the temple and what it how it benefited them, not to mention the Jewish people, but benefited them and the rest of the world, they would have sent armies in to guard it uh, and to keep you know to keep it safe. Um, and Terry and Laurie, yeah, you, uh, good comment. I, you know, I'm happy the wickedness is stopped, but I wish the wicked would study and praise Hashem. Absolutely agree. Uh, it, it would be great if they would. Uh, and, you know, perhaps one day we'll see a day in the world when everyone will, uh, you know, put down weapons of war and uh, pick up Torah and be involved in study and learning and trying to develop their character and, and perfect themselves. So. Any questions that I can answer? Okay, then we will stop here. And I thank you very much for joining us.